0: wondered how taboo shame and lack of good sexual education have stripped away elements of pleasure in childbirth and parenting that are essential to loving intimate relationships join me for another episode of our gasmic birth podcast pleasure in pregnancy birth and parenting as we break down and heal barriers and open the door to more love and intimacy in birth and life you think about the sexuality of childbirth, do you just shut down with all the taboos? Or do you really think about the many similarities and how understanding that birth is a part of your sexuality can change how you prepare for birth and understand the process of labor in new ways? Hi, I'm Deborah pascali Bonaro, founder and director of Orgasmic Birth and host of the Orgasmic Birth Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about female sexuality and plateaus in labor. What's the connection? And I am over the moon honored to welcome my dear friend, co-author of Orgasmic Birth, your guide to a safe, satisfying, and pleasurable birth, renowned expert Elizabeth Davis. Elizabeth has been a midwife, a reproductive healthcare specialist, educator, and consultant for over 40 years. She's internationally active in promoting pregnant person-centered birth and is widely sought after for her expertise in midwifery education and organizational development. Her books include Orgasmic Birth, Heart and Hands, A Midwife's Guide to Pregnancy and Birth, now in its updated fifth edition, The Rhythms of Women's Desire, How Female Sexuality Unfolds at Every Stage of Life and the Women's Wheel of Life. So welcome, Elizabeth. It is beyond a pleasure to have you here today to share your wisdom with our listeners. Oh, thank you so much, Deborah. It's so good to see you again. It is so amazing to be reconnected because we've had so many discussions about orgasmic birth over the years. And I know that your wealth of wisdom and your foundation connecting kind of the sexuality of birth to birth and birthing bodies makes such a difference. And I just wanted to ask you, I thought about this. How did you begin that connection? What set you on this path to see the sexuality of childbirth and kind of bring that together in your education?
1: Well, having an orgasmic birth, that would do it. <laughs> <laughs> and as I, I, you know, that was, that was in 1974, So at a point where midwifery in my state where we were trying, I was trying to practice, you know, that I had intentions to practice there. But when I first began training, well, gosh, it took another 15 years before we were legal in California. So I didn't talk about orgasmic birth to to virtually to anybody really until I met you, because, you know, it's bad enough to be a marginalized healthcare provider in a system that we're, you know, pretty much at our throats, let alone disgrace myself or make myself look crazy (laughs) saying I had an orgasmic birth. But, you know, when I think back on how that happened, I wouldn't even have applied that term to it, except retrospectively, because my first birth was so traumatic. I, I call that period of time, the dark ages of childbirth, where women were, I was literally tied down for that birth. Imagine that. My husband couldn't be in the birth room, and, and it was only maybe a year or two later that this very courageous husband, I love to tell this story, did this amazing thing. They were about to kick him out as they wheeled his wife into the delivery room, and he handcuffed himself to her so he could see the birth. Wow! Those Those times were so ripe with these radical behaviors. But anyway, yeah, this my first birth was really hard. I couldn't find a midwife and I had way too much Pitocin and other interventions that they weren't necessary. So, oh, including this large medial lateral episiotomy. They literally cut sideways. Did they ever ask
0: you? Cause back no, in that didn't, time, no, right?
1: No permission. When I went to see somebody afterwards, they said, well, you know, we could, you could have plastic surgery. And I was just so devastated by that. And it just fueled my fire, you know, it just fueled my fire to have things be better. So two years later, I'm pregnant with my daughter and I have a midwife. I'm out in the middle of nowhere and my midwives are a little worried about that. But I, as her head was really coming deep inside me, I just tuned into my body so profoundly, mostly because I didn't want to tear over that scar. So I found myself feeling everything, all the pressure, all the stimulation, and my breathing changed. It became like, oh, 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 you know, like that, you were know, breathing and just pure ecstasy, you know, just such the, the most beautiful experience of my life. And Again, I didn't really tell anybody about it, but I began studying. I began investigating what is the connection physiologically between sexual activity and birth. And the bottom line is you know, we know that oxytocin is the love hormone. We know that when we're aroused, we release oxytocin even without physical stimulation. And in birth, at the moment of birth, it is 10 times higher than at any other point in a woman's life. And add to that, all that vaginal stimulation. I mean, how could birth not be orgasmic? And that's where we get into looking at the reasons why very often it isn't. What happens in the hospital? What is the usual management and how does that get in the way?
0: Isn't it, it's so sad what we're doing. And I have to say here, I've heard your first birth story before but hearing it again and just thinking how you were treated and how many people are treated today and then that you took that journey and really trusted your body in a new way in a new place with a midwife that could hold that space and had that orgasmic birth wow right so well
1: I you know I do want to say that I What made that birth so hard was that I had educated myself, but I couldn't get a midwife. I couldn't get the birth I wanted. But on the other hand, that gave me a head start to be able to go forward the next time with more confidence because I knew what I missed.
0: Yeah. So as you started to, cause I know you've done so much work and like your books, I always say to everybody, like if anyone listening here hasn't read Elizabeth's books, you have to, and not only once I've read your books multiple times because in different points of life, there's so many different nuggets, but take it forward. Now you had this orgasmic birth and you're researching, How did that bring you together to really go deeper into sexuality and birth? Well, I started, I
1: remember speaking at a conference, I believe it was in Mexico. And and I found myself saying, you know, there, there are a few ways that birth and sex are very much alike. We don't know how long it will last. And we don't know what awaits us at the end. And that was kind of a springboard for me to start Expanding my view of labor and the concept of prolonged labor ultimately being false, that time time being linked to labor was erroneous. And so as a midwifery instructor, which, you know, I've been for 40 years, what I learned was that this progress expectation that virtually every hospital utilizes, unless they're very progressive of X number of centimeters or centimeter per hour or you know for a mul- whatever it might be, was more or less based on the, the work of Friedman in the 50s, a physician who never set out to do a study. He basically just was exploring length of labor and generated a progress curve that was based on an average. So, average to scientifically speaking, you don't create a performance standard based on an average. You know, the range of possibility as per length of labor is dramatic. Some people birth in three hours and some people birth in 36. So, in midwifery care, what we really emphasize is not the time, but the well being of mother and baby. And we are on the lookout for signs of labor that is in trouble or obstructed. And physiologically, there are certain points where that is more likely to happen. It it has to do with the baby's descent and how it's relating to the mother's pelvis. So apart from that, I've also discovered that there are points in labor where we naturally pause to regroup and these are what i would call the plateaus
0: and i like that because we don't talk about that right we're talking about that constant progress so what is that plateau why do you think it's there and what happens well first i want to add this before we go
1: any further because i don't know what what struck me to want to to want to investigate this but I imagine that most of us have seen the diagram of orgasm. There's a standard diagram out there of orgasm. And it shows you know, the excitation, excitation phase, and then, and then the orgasm, and then the resolution. It's pretty much up, over, and down. And something inside me, well, I knew I was going to Brazil. I was going to be speaking to a group of 3,000, I think the largest Congress I've ever spoken at. And the majority of them were male physicians striving to be humanistic. I thought, what, what can I do to reach these folks? I got to talk about sex. They want me to talk about that. So I went searching for an image of female sexual, female orgasm. And I ended up finding one. It was Masters and Johnson way back in the day that did some of the pioneering research on sexuality, and what Virginia Masters diagrammed was that for females, and maybe for males, but she was focusing on males, there are three orgasmic possibilities. So the first looks very much like the male. You know, there's the excitation phase, the plateau, the orgasm, and the resolution. And then the second is interesting because we go up, but we never quite hit that peak, but we kind of bounced along the top. So I I ran this by my audience. Well, first I said, which is male and which is female? And everyone laughed. And then I said to the females in the group, I said, do you you all know about that? Kind of that bouncing? And they were all, yeah, we know. But the final one was the most important to me because here there would be the, the rise and a pause, and a rise and a pause and then a rise so high, higher than any of the others, and the duration of the orgasm was so dramatic, and then the resolution. And I thought, well, that's what this is all about. You know, female sexual nature is reflected in the birthing process at these particular points where we pause. So I also said to the the group at large, you know, and just call out your answer. What are you doing when you take that pause. And many of them, you know, they all smiled that they knew that they knew about that one too. And they said things like, oh, changing my breathing or changing position or moving around a little bit or trying to spread out to hold more energy. But the, the magic word for me was integrating. I'm integrating so that I can go on so that I can hold more and feel more. And so then I looked at the birth process and I found this wonderful study that was done, an excellent study done in Africa. It's on PubMed and I can supply information for Deb so she can supply it to you. But what, it's 12 locations, well-controlled, all vertex term babies, no, no Pitocin used, no augmentation. And they found that the average time between four and five centimeters was seven Hours average, wow, and it was like twenty five thousand. It was a big study, and then they also found at eight centimeters there was a pause point too, of two maybe three hours, and then sometimes again around the point of crowning, and I immediately saw the correlation to my experience as a midwife. So. What I can say about those times, that four centimeter point, that's the point where you go, many, especially the first time, where many go, oh my God, I can't do this. I'm not one of those natural birthers. Forget orgasmic, <laughs> like, I'm not gonna be able to do it. It's, it hurts, I'm doing everything right, you know? Well, that's another way I've said this, is that's the point of realizing you don't do birth, it does you. And what a lot of people don't know that is right around the corner, the endorphins are waiting. The beta endorphins are there to provide nature's pain relief if we just surrender. And that surrender is bigger than physical. It's letting go of a lot of you know, psychological constructs around being in control and doing it right. But when you release that and you move into labor land and the endorphins kick into your body, then you begin to have that experience of altered state, and you feel you feel good. It feels good. So the, the eight centimeter point, I could say a bit more about this. I think I will do. Yeah. And another thing that's happening as we progress in labor is our brain waves change. Brain waves go from being your average daily chatted up, coffee drinking, or tea, whatever it is beta frequency, which looks really jagged and rapid. And and when we're in that space, it's harder for us to link up with the waves of others because we're like almost static interference. But when we slow down, the first stage in slowing down is what we call alpha. And we know that in meditation, we know that actually in rhythmic activities like making love, dance, like gardening has a rhythm to it, even you know, washing dishes, folding clothes, things that that take us out of our brains and more into our bodies and the waves on a chart, they really look like waves, you know? And with that, we just reach deeper into ourselves. And once you cross that four centimeter point, you move into alpha and the beta endorphins help you get there. But as labor goes further and deeper, we move to a frequency known as theta and theta is the slowest brainwave frequency we can be in this side of consciousness. So, you know, otherwise we're asleep. And the waves are, they're just, ooh, they're really, you know, the amplitude is really significant. The hard part about that, that we're now really having frank discussions about trauma. Thank goodness, because for a while, even that topic was taboo in the birthing arena is, But the example given through the UK study that showed that many women who had been raped had flashbacks during labor. And the the explanation is simple. Even though I've never been raped, if I imagine it happening to me, I know the first thing I would do is fight. I'd try to get away. I'd try to escape. I'd have so much adrenaline running, my beta frequency would be off the chart. And beta and adrenaline go together, by the way. I say more about that, but just for the time being. But if I couldn't escape and get away, I'd just drop down into survival. And that level of survival is Theta. It's really slowing down, stepping out of time, just getting through and I hope I survive. So the beauty of Theta is the healing potential of labor at that point. And I know that for myself because that first birth, I had a lot of healing to do, but it wasn't until I reached that eight centimeter point that I did it. And my midwives were distressed because they were wanting me to progress more. And they, I mean, here I am at three three hours, I think I was at eight. And I felt like I am in perfect peace and bliss. I mean, I knew exactly where my body was at, where my breathing was at. I knew exactly what to do. And between contractions, I was just traveling. And again, retrospectively, I can look at what my work was at the time, what I was, I was reweaving or re imprinting my identity as a birthing person. I was changing those negative imprints from my first birth to positive ones and that that's the power of birth. And, you know, it. to call plateaus, we used to call them like, I think before we understood them, well, they're a little inconvenient, but we'll get through, we'll, we'll wait it out, you know, because midwives, even, even back then when we knew less, we weren't into pushing it. Uh, and then it became more like, well, they seem to be functional. There's a regrouping going on here. But now I would say they're sacred. I think what we do in that time is meant to be, as per the transformation of becoming a mother, becoming a mother again. There's a necessary redefinition and reimagining oneself in the new role. It's not that you're consciously thinking about it, but your whole being is being changed. And at crowning, sometimes, you know, the psychological things, and when I say crowning, I mean, you know, you see a lot of head and then no, and a lot of head and then no, and a lot of head and then no, and you, I, being a midwife too, I, and still believing that pelvimetry is an important skill in our practice, I know there's no mechanical reason, as per the baby and the body, that the baby isn't just coming right out. But afterwards, when women have spoken to me, they said, you know, I, it was my last baby and I, I was just wanting to hold on for a while, or, you know, things were not good with my partner. And I, bringing a baby into the world was, I, I needed a little time to make it okay. So again, the function, it's beyond function. And that really is something I, I just wanna impart that to whoever will listen and really encourage people to explore midwifery care where those plateaus can truly be honored and understood.
0: So beautiful, Elizabeth. You gave so many incredible nuggets that I'm savoring. And I know our listeners are savoring. And I'm sure some of the people that are pregnant and partners are probably thinking, how can I prepare for this? What would you say to those people that are pregnant? How can they bring the awareness of the plateaus into their birth and maybe have these conversations with their caregivers?
1: Well, I think that allowing oneself to have those plateaus when, when you're making love is a good start and not feeling, you know, I, I have to tell you this, a previous sexual partner of mine, at one point we were making love and he said, you're not progressing <laughs> and I thought I'm done. <laughs> no way. <laughs> totally. So reframing, you know, the, this these concepts, you know, as in partnership is a good beginning. And also, if there has been trauma, if you know you are a person who's who's had real traumatic experience with birth, perhaps or sexual abuse, look into therapies that will get you into theta, where those memories are encoded. This is also a relatively new development in our understanding that we can talk, 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 talk in beta, but we're not necessarily healing where we need to. So deep hypnotherapy or something called EMDR, which takes us rapidly into theta, can allow the release of trauma in a powerful way. It's something that I did myself with regard to my first birth. And it was the most interesting thing. I I was calm, but I was crying so much. The tears were puddling in my lap. I was releasing so much, but at the same time, realizing, wait a minute, I'm not my trauma. I'm not my trauma. I'm me. And if if you can have that before the birth, then it's a little bit more smooth sailing
0: Thank you. That's such great, great wisdom. And I wanna ask you this too, because we talk a lot about, right? Like the birth is gonna impact postpartum as well, and how they begin to adjust and heal on every level. Do you have some words of wisdom in how when you have this awareness and you can bring this healing in pregnancy and get in touch with that plateaus, what will that ripple out or how can you use this in those postpartum days?
1: Well, you, I think you manifest that experience in terms of patience and it's patience with your own growth as a parent with your own emotions that aren't always quote positive. We get frustrated, we get exhausted. We don't, you know, we're, we disconnect with part, you know, we have all kinds of challenges postpartum, but well, I think what plateaus really teach us is that it's, it's not a straight line. It's not that whole concept of progress. It's part of hospital birth, that straight line to the top. No, it's not. We pause, we regroup, we hesitate. We stumble. We're not sure. And in those moments, if we can be honest, I mean, I remember telling my kids before I was really sure they can understand, you know, I'm sorry, honey, mommy's so tired. I just, let's lie down. We'll just read. I I just can't, we just can't run around anymore. Whatever it was, these ways of being truthful with our children and with ourselves that, that can really be derived from, that experience of pausing and finding the richness in it.
0: Thank you so much for all these words of wisdom. And I know, Elizabeth, people would love to connect with you. Can you share your website, social? How can people engage with you and follow you?
1: Well, ElizabethDavis.com is really the best way. I am on Facebook, Elizabeth Davis Midwife. You'll find me and yeah, I you know, I provide a lot of information there on reaching me and email yeah, but you can also text me. I'm that's an easy way for me to converse and I like conversing with people rather than just writing about it.
0: So yeah. Thank you so much. And I have to add, and we'll put all the books in the show note too, that your books are easily accessible and we hope everybody's reading our book together, orgasmic sure. birth. <laughs> your guide to a safe, satisfying, and pleasurable birth experience. So thank you so much for sharing. And for everyone listening, we would love to hear your takeaways. We hope that you'll send us emails, definitely leave comments. Please like and subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram at orgasmicbirth and put your favorite quote or takeaway from today's episode and tag us on your social. So thank you so much. sending you lots of love welcome wow you too Thanks for listening to the Orgasmic Birth Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about pleasure in birth parenting and birth work, visit orgasmicbirth.com forward slash more for my free gifts. And please leave a review about your experience. Reviews help us to reach more people and please subscribe.